right. Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we have part two of our series on Calvinism, and we have our returning guest, Arthur Hagland, and we're talking about Calvinism. So in our last podcast, we just talked about Calvinism and how they tend to read the Bible, the assumptions, their presuppositions that they bring to the Bible, and how they discount a lot of normal reading comprehension standards when, when coming to the Bible. Then we moved into a little bit about who God is in Calvinism. And uh, one thing we talked about was the, the glorification of God, which is key in their theology. Whatever brings greatest glory to God, God needs to be the ultimate dignum dio, the perfect perfection. Whatever brings him ultimate glory, that's, that's the God that they want to believe in. And so you, you see this when you're talking to Calvinism. They'll be obsessed with will. If someone does something that God doesn't actually want, then apparently that person's stronger than God and has a better will than God, and God just lost the will contest. God's not sovereign anymore because someone uh, bested God. It's, it's weird to me because do you uh, come across that type of thinking anywhere else in the world other than Calvinism? Yeah, Islam. Anything that happens is, is by the will of Allah, and uh, nothing outside of his will is is even possible to happen, just can't. No, it, it's just this, this idea that uh, will is anything more than a thought. Yeah. Now, it, it doesn't say that God willed the universe into existence. It, it doesn't, it says God does action what he wills, <clears throat> what he desires, what he, what he thinks. But they conflate power and will together. I've had, I've had uh, Calvinists say to me, well, you could will to fly, but you can't fly, can you? No, because will and power are not the same right. thing. And I'll point out to Calvinists, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to God, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. And this is after saying, let this cup pass from me. So did Jesus mm-hmm. and God the Father, did they have the same wills? Because in Calvinism, if there's any deviation from God's will, it's not in accordance with divine plan. Everything in the world happens by the will of God. And to say Jesus is God, and Jesus and God have different wills, that's not allowed in Calvinism, because that violates their understanding of sovereignty, of uh, glory, and their dignum deo concept of who God is. Well, it's uh, how can how can there be a conflict because you know then they have the hypostatic union. So if Jesus is at that point saying let this pass from, well then it's his humanity speaking. It's not his fullness of the Godhead speaking. There's always a way out. Yeah, that's that's weird as well. We'll we'll kind of get to that a little bit later. Uh, their concept of how that works. But then the question is, did Jesus' will conflict with God's? They're going to kind of have to answer yes, but they do have these Weasley ways of trying to just discount the text. It's not textual interpretation. It's textual dismissal through these, this wordplay. So God yeah. in Calvinism, he is pure acity. That means he is pure act. God can't change in any way. God has to be timeless. 
God has to be impassable. Nothing can affect God. Because in Neoplatonism, uh, Plotinus wrote that, you know, if anything's affecting God, then God's not going to be this pure good anymore. And God would be less than that. And in Platonism, the universe is spawned by the divine looking into itself and then spawning this intellectual realm, which in turn descends and creates the realm of the soul. The perfect, immutable realm, that's, that will never, ever change. And that's, that's incomprehensible. And the goal of a good Platonist is to try to comprehend the incomprehensible. And again, Augustine taught this. Augustine had multiple ascents where he describes his inward meditations to reach these realms. He taught farmers to do the same. And this is the basis of ideas about God, that God can't change, God can't do anything, God's, God's impassable. And so when they come across passages where God, God weeps, God uh, rejoices, God is angry, God is furious, God executes vengeance, God does things for his own name's sake, they have to discount all of that. None of that. Well, they do not like to say that uh, God has uh, human qualities about him, because I guess that equals frailty. Yep. Any any anyone who can affect God, if I make God sad, then I have power over God, and that can't be allowed in Calvinism because it's Platonism, and God has to be totally immutable, timeless, impassable, pure acity. Any change in God would violate this. Here's another one. Well, I have, uh, have Merriam-Webster's uh, current dictionary version of aseity um, up in front of me, and it just says the quality or state of being, self-derived, self-originated, specifically the absolute self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy of God. So this is a, this is a term that evidently only applies to God, so it had to have been invented uh, for a reason, mm-hmm. and it's not in the Bible. <clears throat> Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, is defined in the self-existing one, so it fulfills this definition quite well. I mean, I am that I am. Tell him yeah. I am sent you. Uh, but that doesn't go beyond that. Uh, the Bible does say God is love, and God says that He He will enact vengeance, and it says that He has wrath doesn't say that he is vengeance. It doesn't say that he mm-hmm. is wrath. So, I mean, they they abuse the word attribute. Absolutely. It is, it is not uh, an attribute of God to have wrath. Like I jokingly said on the, the previous uh, edition here, that part one, is that you know, God just was there without having created anything, just full of wrath. Just <laughs> looked around and there was just nothing to hammer. So he invented something to hammer. Mm. And then he wanted to get praised for all this wrath that he had. What did he have wrath for? Wrath isn't isn't anything that he is. It is a reaction. And when uh, when we have this term aseity and then other things are are added onto it, like aseity is a Christmas tree, and now we're going to decorate it. Absolutely. And Norman Geisler, he writes about all this in his book, Making God in the Image of Man. And it's funny. He champions, this goes along with simplicity, or with acity, immutability, timelessness, and impassibility. It's a concept of simplicity. And uh, if we don't have to think too hard to try to figure out 
what core Christian doctrine simplicity uh, violates. Simplicity. God has no parts, and God is a perfect single concept, single substance. There's no moving parts in God. There's no differentiation in any parts of God. That's what simplicity is. And this is one of the attributes mm-hmm. they champion. And so if Jesus is God, right, and the Holy Spirit's God, and if the Trinity is true, then simplicity is not true. It's not true. Because well, I mean, we can go right to Genesis. God singular said, "Let us plural make man singular in our plural image singular." So, I mean, if if we put things like singularity on God, then we get oneness doctrines. If mm-hmm. we we refuse to believe that my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. If if we refuse to give more than lip service to that, then all we are is on the road to error. Yep, absolutely. We need to say, I don't know. What about this about God? I don't know. Well, I thought you were a Christian. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm a symbol, and you can only put a symbol amount of water in me, and God is an ocean, and so I don't know. Yeah, another thing, like, we're talking about God speaking. Augustine, he didn't think God could speak. He said, there's no befores, there's no afters, because remember, God's timeless. So he said, Mm -hmm. when God said, this is my beloved son, he said, that's a creature in time mimicking eternal words. God didn't even say that. That's not God speaking. That's just a creature speaking on behalf of God. So this is to what extent Platonism affects the Bible. You can't, you have to reinterpret everything the Bible says, and in this non-intuitive way, to fit this theology that is not described in the Bible. Timelessness. Where's timelessness in the Bible? They grab vague proof texts that are about God's everlastingness, never being created and never going to end, and they they just assume that God is outside of space and time. It's not in the Bible. The Jews didn't think like that. That, That's that's not even a concept that they explain anywhere. Well, eternal has to be within time. Yep. I mean, it's 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 infinite, but it's infinite of something. It's not infinite. I mean, he's called the ancient of days. Right. And if you think about the perfect way to illustrate this, it would be that God is from everlasting to everlasting, right? And that's what the Bible says. That's what that's the Jewish concept of God that God's everlasting. But no, everything has to be reinterpreted. It has to be thought in this new light. And this complex metaphysical system has to be imposed on the Bible where there is none. And this is another reason I think Calvinists are mystic, because they have to take these mystical interpretations and impose them on the text where the context does not warrant. Where do we get this idea of God has a secret will? And did that come, I'm asking you because I'm ignorant, did that come from Augustine? Because there needs to be some sort of mechanism to explain why God would say one thing and then that thing does not come to pass. And you find those writings in Calvin. I don't recall Augustine uh, writing about that anywhere in his works, but I could be wrong. I could be missing something. But they always invent these mechanisms to explain away the texts. And this is just one of those mechanisms. God has two wills. He says, I want everyone to be saved. 
Uh, but I'm really just choosing some of you to be saved. That's Which we call that a lie. Yeah, we call it double-mindedness. And the Bible warns us against double-mindedness. Yeah, so, it says, let the double-minded man not think that he will receive anything from God. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just look at it simpler. If I If I tell my son, I want you to get your license today, and then I do everything that I can to make sure that he doesn't make it to his license exam, to make sure that the car is not running, uh, to make sure that uh, we're running late, well, my, we have this term, actions speak louder than words. Mm-hmm. And my actions would show my secret will, and my secret will shows that my expressed will is a lie. You just can't have it two ways and cover it by, well, it's a mystery. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a mystery. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not saying it's like this. I would like a hamburger, but I would also like spaghetti, but I can only choose one. We can, we can bring that even into the realm of sin. You know, I do not, I'm married. I love God. I love my wife. I do not want to lust after a woman, but that girl, she's something else. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got the war of the flesh and the spirit, and what Paul said, the thing that I want to do, I don't, and the thing that I don't want to do, I do. So we have that. But it's, again, it's not a secret. And for God to give us a book to have the Holy Spirit motivate people to write in, in I use the example of an executive and a secretary taking dictation. I'm not going to say it was that exacting. But the Holy Spirit inspired them to write what they wrote and to have a secret will that, number one, is not even mentioned. And number two, if he did have a secret will, how could you find out what it is because it's secret? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know that it's actually supporting your doctrine. <laughs> It's just another it's, invented it's mechanism. The only thing we do have is what we have. And if it's telling us a will that's contrary to what the real will is, then then what good is the Bible? That's what good the, is the good express point. words of God if his real will that can his written will can be violated. Yeah. His written will can be resisted. Absolutely. But his secret will can't. It's a yeah. bad joke. Yeah, the Bible is ancillary to Calvinism. Calvinism could exist without the Bible just perfectly fine because what Calvinism is to the Bible, the Bible is just for proof texting their presuppositions that they bring to the text. And so there's there's a way, you know, people are smart, there's ways to discount anything that's written. That's why good readers, people who you can read books and understand books, when they read something, they look at context to try to understand what's the most probable meaning and what are possible alternative meanings, and they rank them by probability. And that's, that's what directs how they understand a text, rather than what they want to bring to the text. And, and you'll hear, hear Calvinists, and they'll say, no, you can't do that. When uh, Moses asked God to not destroy Israel... God is not actually convinced by Moses' prayer. No, you have to bring in things, ideas from outside that text to that to say that God already uh, had it uh, predetermined, God predetermined everything. And when the text talks about God's change in heart, that's not attributable to Moses. 
That's not in the text. It's not in the text. It's being imported onto the text. And if you read the ancient Jewish writers, they just did not write with these presuppositions that Calvinists want to bring to every single text. It's not there. So let's talk about, in Calvinism, what is God's relation to the world? And we've already talked a little bit about sovereignty. Again, it's a redefined term. If we look in any dictionary, in any language, sovereign means a king, a ruler, an absolute authority above which there is no appeal. So God is that. Yeah, absolutely. He is the king. Jesus is the king of kings. So you can't appeal past God. I don't think I should be going to hell. I'm going to I'm going to put my appeal in and then somebody that's greater than you will will decide if you are right for sending me here. That can't and won't happen. But uh, most cults use common terms. They give it a new definition. And in Calvinism, the new definition of sovereignty means control, just like depravity means inability. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Also not in any dictionary that's outside of the religious. They say in their confessions that God has preordained all things that come to pass. Well, nothing else needs to be said because that is an absolute determinist statement. You can't add anything to that to draw it back. If something must come to pass because it's ordained and it cannot come to pass unless ordained, then the ordaining of it is the whole of it. We are absolutely puppets at that point. Now, well, God makes you want to do it. I'm sorry, he what me? He (laughs) makes me. If he makes me, then I'm not involved in it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can put a program in my computer, and the computer will say, I love you. But I made the computer say that. So even though the computer has components in it, and it wants, to run this program because it's it's a compatible program. It's a Windows program instead of an Apple program. It wants to run it, and so it says it loves me. It doesn't. It was made to say that. You know, just is my computer evil if it gets a virus? No. <laughs> well, it's only doing what it wants to do. It, it, it doesn't matter. When God has determined beforehand the flip of every coin, the role of every die, whether I am even able to accept Christ or not, it doesn't matter if I want to reject him. That, that, that can't possibly enter into it because I was made to want to reject him. So sin, I mean, in, Calvin says it in his institutes that no angel or man can conceive anything unless God makes him conceive it. And he can't think on it unless God makes him think on it. And he can't act upon what he thinks unless God makes him act upon what he thinks. That is the divine puppet master. So, so what else is there? Yeah, you'll, you'll tell this to Calvinists, and they'll say, oh, no, you're misrepresenting me. And so one of my favorite memes, and it's really funny, uh, the first panel is when Calvinists describe Calvinism causing sin. And it quotes E. Palmer, uh, the book, Five Points of Calvinism. Foreordation means God's sovereign plan, whereby he decides all that is to happen in the entire universe. Nothing in this world happens by chance. God is in the back of everything. He decides and causes all things to happen. 
and do happen. He has foreordained everything after the counsel of this will, the moving of a finger, the beating of a heart, the laughter of a girl, the mistake of a typist, even sin. And the second panel is, but when a non-Calvinist describes Calvinism causing sin, and it quotes the exact same thing, and then it writes, he just doesn't understand Calvinism. <laughs> is that your experience too? That is, that is absolutely my experience. And, and because I, I actually have that meme, and uh, I decided to do the same thing, I, uh, I forget if it was James White or, or if it was John Piper or somebody, I, I said, I just, all I did is post it. And I, I got a, you know, 17, 20 comments immediately. You're, you're misrepresenting Calvinism. No Calvinist would teach such heresy. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just wanting you guys to understand something. I, I copied this from somebody else. It's not even mine. It doesn't matter. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and then when I exposed who it was, you know, then silence. Oh, that is crazy. so funny. And you could bait them easily because they regularly deny things that Calvinism teaches. They'll say, you don't understand Calvinism. That will be their default argument. And it, it's designed to shut down a conversation. It's designed to say that you just don't know what you're talking about and let the experts handle it or whatever. Yeah, it's an ad hominem. Everyone can just ignore you for the rest of the debate because uh, you just don't know anything. You you know, why go to the garbage man for a diagnosis? He might be right, and the doctor might be wrong. So always it's a good idea to bait them, to bait, to bait them, get them to say things, and just expose how they are inconsistent. Using quotes by Calvin, it's really funny, really, really funny. Um, <laughs> when they don't know it's from Calvin, and then, then they'll often say, well, Calvin's not right all the time. Or they'll say, well, Calvin is not saying what you're saying he's saying. It's like, I'm just quoting Calvin. I'm just quoting Calvin. And you're discounting yeah, him as we're, not we're Calvin. Calvinists, but we don't hold to everything Calvin taught. We're Christians oh, first and foremost. And, and I said, well, if you call yourself a Calvinist, and then you say you don't hold to everything that, that he taught, that is like saying, I'm a Christian, but I don't hold to everything Jesus taught. At what point is that a true statement anymore that you're a Calvinist or a Christian? Yeah, I, I know I, some I Calvinists. I'm calling them Genovites and sub-Calvinists. Yeah, I know some Calvinists who will just disclaim the label of Calvinism. We're all Christians, really? Because uh, you're worshiping a God who's pure, acity, immutable, timeless. I don't see that in the Bible. I think you're a Calvinist. But here's something that, that's funny that happened to me the other day. We're talking about election, and uh, someone posted a meme. And it said that uh, if someone could lose their salvation, then everyone would, or something like that. If, if, if it was a possibility to lose your salvation, then all people would. And so I started talking to them about how Calvinism is mysticism, because this goes along with the idea that Jesus is that divine spark that enables people to ascend to the next spiritual realm. That's mysticism. And, yeah. and without that spark, we're totally dead. In, in, the, in the theology of origin, Church Father, um, only certain people had this divine spark that ascended from this divine realm. And only those people were the enlightened ones that could eventually return to the spiritual realm. And that's what they're teaching, that uh, this divine spark, that's the enabler. And once people have this divine spark, they could do nothing but accept it, which, which is really funny because Calvinists always go on about 
what it's like to be dead. Well, once you're alive, they still think you're dead and you can't choose not to be saved. <laughs> they're dead before they're I, saved and after. Yeah, I, I used that one. I said, well, what number death is it to be dead in sins and trespasses? What do you mean? Well, it says in the Bible that it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, and the judgment leads to the second death. So the once to die must be the first death. So what number is this dead and sitting trespasses? Mm -hmm. One and a half, one and three quarter. I mean, right now we have number one and number two. So is that death number zero? I don't, I don't understand. Where's that one? So this is uh, unconditional election, preservation of the saints, perseverance of the saints. Once you're elect, you can do nothing to not be elect. And it goes along with that Platonist idea of the divine spark, the divine uh, enlightenment. And that's what Calvinist election is. And that's why I see Calvinism as an extension of this mysticism that no one could choose. Everyone is either enlightened or not enlightened. And that's the distinguishing factor to decide whether you're elect or not elect. Yeah, I, I, I understand where you're drawing the parallel there, and it, it may even be correct, but I don't think you'll ever get uh, a Calvinist to use that terminology. <laughs> mysticism? Oh, man, the, the guy... Well, not just that, but the uh, divine spark and uh, enlightened. Right. You know, it, I think they really do want to stay away from anything mystical because uh, my experience is, number one, most Calvinists are Calvinists because they're pew-sitters, and they sit under Calvinist tutelage. They are not Calvinists because they read strong Calvinist teachings. They'll read John MacArthur, and you know most of his stuff is written according to Calvinist principles. But he's not actually setting down Calvinism. He's not setting down that. Mm -hmm. And when they aren't taught the underpinnings, and they're just and they're just taught the tip of the iceberg, and they don't know you know, where it actually came from, there's, there's just a lot of ignorance in it. I, was, I read more Calvin now than I ever did when I was a Calvinist, and I think that is the truth generally. Yeah, absolutely. So one of their ideas is uh, the election regeneration. No man on earth can do anything good unless they have this election, this regeneration. That means if someone is saving a baby out of fire, if they're an atheist, uh, a God-hater, and they save a baby out of fire, they're doing it for selfish reasons, and they could do no good at all. And that's an evil act because it's done out of evil intentions. And so this, this circles around to their idea of election, to sovereignty, to God's greatest glory, to the total depravity of man. Totally, total depravity of man. Man is made in the image of God throughout the Bible. And yet, man is totally depraved in Calvinism. <laughs> well, the, the, uh, if you look in the Bible, I mean, they like to quote, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. <laughs> yes, you're quoting Romans, which is about nations. Gentiles means nations. Mm -hmm. And Israel is the nation of Israel. And if you look at what he is, Paul is quoting, it's, it's either Psalm 53 or Psalm 14, I believe. And uh, they're almost identical. There's like a paragraph in there, four or five lines that are different between the two. And he's talking about, I've looked down at the, the children of men, 
and I see the people that eat up my people as if they were bread. There is none righteous, no, not one. Well, when the last time an, an individual attacked Israel and ate up <laughs> Israel like it was bread? Right. It's a nation. So, yeah, there's no nation that's seeking after God. And it was a prophecy, and it, and it isn't concerning all time because God says, when my people who are called by my name humble themselves and call out to me, that I will heal them, heal their land. And if you want to look at, oh, if there's none righteous, no, not one, use an electronic Bible and look up righteous man, righteous men, and upright. And you're going to find over 200 scriptures. Excuse me, I'm using it as the proof texting way. You're going to find 200 passages that talk about upright men. Yeah, and look at the context. Look at the context. Job. The entire story is premised on Job being righteous without sin. The entire story is premised on that, and his friends they are the ones. Ar- <laughs> yeah, the, the friends are the ones arguing that Job is not righteous, and that and that they're the bad guys of the story. Right. I, I, when anybody says Job, I'm I'm like, okay, before you quote Job, do you know who's <laughs> talking there? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, just because it's in the scripture. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, the king said, look in the fiery furnace. One looks like the Son of God. Well, number one, he wouldn't know what the Son of God looks like. Nobody at that time would have. I mean, it's just a statement. Yeah. You know, maybe... It's maybe, probably contextual you know, king, to his culture. Yeah, or or maybe, you know, it's like uh, the king's new clothes. Only the king can see them. But uh, we we just know that there are lies in the Bible that are that are accurately recorded. There are errors that are accurately recorded. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's true. True that it happened, but what was said wasn't necessarily true. All right. So we're about running out of time. Uh, I'll, I'll uh, leave you with one last uh, funny little tidbit. Talking a little bit how man in the Bible, you know, what does it mean to be made after the image of God? And Norman Geisler wrote a book called Making God in the Image of Man, in which he, he's all mad because uh, Christians are eschewing these attributes, simplicity, pureacity, immutability, timelessness, impassibility. And so what do you think is the one thing he does not describe in his book named Making God in the Image of Man? Well, what would that be? He doesn't explain how man is in the image of God. He doesn't do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, oh, man. It's it's funny. Well, hopefully everyone uh, learned a little bit about what Calvinism is, some of the basic assumptions in Calvinism, how their metaphysics leads to their view of reality, how their metaphysics leads to their view of how election and sovereignty and regeneration works. And hopefully people, uh, if you've got a strong opinion, if you're a Calvinist, maybe you want to come on and uh, correct our errors in this podcast. I fully invite you to do so. I'd like to thank my guest today, Arthur Haglund. If you have any questions or comments, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It was a good time. If anyone has any questions or comments, throw that on the God is Open website or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 